This is Professor Allen, and welcome to the Quarter Bin. In every episode of this podcast, I'll summarize, criticize, discuss, and review a single issue from my comic book collection, which I will sort of select at random. Any book from my comic book collection is eligible as long as I paid no more than 25 cents for it. Was the issue worth 25 cents? Was it a bargain at 25 cents? Or was it still overpriced? Stay tuned and find out. For this 40th episode of the Quarterbin Podcast, I'm looking at the book I was probably most excited about the moment that I found it in the Quarterbins. The cover proclaims this as a fabulous first issue, and I think that's absolutely correct. We're looking at Rom Space Knight number one for Marvel Comics cover dated December 1979. For this momentous episode, covering this momentous issue, I had to bring in a true ROM freak to cover this with me. Scott Gardner, welcome to the Quarter Bin. Hello, thank, thank you for having me. That's quite the introduction. <laughs> I mean, we want two ROM freaks. That's next, because you only have 3,700 shows on, well, the, yeah. on the network. So, Yeah, exactly. I'm down for it if you're down for it. Who knows? <laughs> this could spawn a whole new thing. It's the, 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 the backdoor pilot. Scott is, of course, co-founder, co-proprietor, co-freak at Two True Freaks, great podcast network and online community. Scott's main responsibility, other than keeping Honeywell in line, is on the monthly Monday shows. Now, that lineup has changed a little bit, Scott, so let's talk about where we currently are in the the current monthly Monday shows, uh, that schedule over at TTF. (laughs) Well, we uh, not long ago, we ended our regular Star uh, Wars show that was called Star Wars Monthly Monday, and we relaunched it essentially, but it's a brand new show now called Growing Up Star Wars. So it's, it's much broader, um, but the focus is, is more, I think, original trilogy, although you know, it's certainly not going to be exclusively original trilogy. It's much more nostalgia-based, and it's myself and Chris Honeywell. And uh, our very good friend Scott Rifen, who's uh, a co-host of Dinner for Geeks, and he just started up his own brand new Star Wars show called My Star Wars Story. Uh, he joins us for that show. And it's just a very nostalgic look back at Star Wars, you know, the entire phenomenon, uh, you know, especially the original trilogy and kind of looking forward to, you know, what Star Wars is becoming with the Disney acquisition and the new trilogy and everything like that. Uh, second Monday of the month, we do Star Trek Monthly Monday. Uh, we do a regular uh, original series episode and a Next Generation episode. Third Monday of the month is Comics Monthly Monday. And again, it's Chris and I, and we're joined by Michael Bailey of Views from the Long Box and from Crisis to Crisis, a Superman podcast. And that one's just a lot of fun because you never know where that show is going to go. That's probably the funniest show that we do because the three of us are just crazy and <laughs> it just kind of meanders all over the place. But it's always about comics and just a lot of fun. The amazing thing about that show is there is a format. And despite having the format, it is the most freewheeling show. Also. Yeah. Like it, it managed to hit both of those. <laughs> you know, to you know, be format, to have structure, to have segments, but also to go anywhere. I never thought of it like that, but you are absolutely correct. We we stick to our format pretty rigidly on that show, yet it does feel very <laughs> just kind of loosey goosey in the in the way that it, it comes off sometimes. But uh, freewheeling, I guess, would be there a good go. thing to say. I, but I, I really get a kick out of doing that show. 
And then in the uh, fourth week slot, fourth Monday slot, is our brand spanking new show called Earning My Ears, in which I and Scott Rifen, uh, we are both huge, huge Walt Disney World fanatics. Uh, it's just us geeking out about everything Walt Disney World, and I'm just having the time of my life doing that show. I've been wanting to do a Walt Disney World podcast for the longest time, and so this is that outlet for the both of us, and just having a blast. And... Of course, the show that that replaced was called Commentary Monthly Monday, where where we did, of course, movie commentaries. That show's not a, exactly dead or gone away, it's, but it has been replaced in that slot. As we get time to do commentaries, and especially you know several times a year, there's a fifth Monday of the month, uh, we will go back and, and still touch on you know, Of course, we're still very interested in doing mo- uh, movie commentaries, we just didn't feel that we necessarily needed a regular monthly show for that anymore. Right. And, of course, the, the Disney one kind of supersedes it in my interest level, to be quite right. frank about it. So, As a uh, comic book guy and as a Disney guy, I'm sure the Marvel acquisition absolutely excited you and terrified you when it happened. A few years in, just sort of what, are your, what are your impressions? Terrified never, uh, strangely <laughs> enough. I know that a lot of fans, uh, particularly fans that weren't Disney fans or particularly enamored of Disney, were scared to death that uh, – because I remember very vividly when that announcement came down. You know, There was a lot of fear, but there was some outright you know, negative things said, and I remember there being a lot of things like – you know, now Wolverine will be teaming up with Goofy and, you know, they're going to, you know, make the Punisher deliver flowers or something. And, and, and you know, something you know, goofy yeah. things like that. The low hanging fruit of jokes. For one well, but I think it was a legitimate fear that somehow Marvel would become Disney eyes and it would kind of take the teeth out of especially the, the harsher elements of the Marvel Universe, like your Punisher and your Wolverine. And, you know, five years in. I don't hear those kinds of comments anymore. I'm hearing them about Star Wars, strangely, which kind of confuses me because I would think that what Disney has done with Marvel, I would think, would have most fanboys kowtowing at this point, going, thank you, thank you, thank you. (laughs) Because, you know, they, they took a company that, you know, Marvel was doing pretty well by the time Disney acquired it. But, you know, there had been that really rough stretch where Disney, or excuse me, where Marvel, rather, had gone through their bankruptcy and they were struggling both financially but also to kind of reinvent themselves to find their identity again to find their feet again and i feel like they were on their way but of course i think like i think the disney acquisition did nothing but shore them up and now with the movie successes that they've had just hit after hit after hit it's unprecedented. Right. Even Disney film history is not rife with hit after hit after hit. A lot of people want to kind of rewrite it that way. But, you know, you have to remember uh, in Disney history, you know, of course, you know, the, the early films, Snow White and then Pinocchio and, you know, several of them in a row were big hits. But not every one of them came out of the gate and did what we call today blockbuster numbers. You know, Walt himself was was quite the fan of doing multiple films and having multiple films in his queue back to back because he knew that, you know, you might get one that's not necessarily a hit, but you have one right behind it that hopefully is. There's a natural up and down and ebb and flip to the creative process. There there just has to be. There has to be, exactly. But this uh, this run that Marvel, you know, the Marvel films I'm I'm speaking of are are on at the moment is 
it's incredible to behold because yeah, amazing. so far they have not had uh, a turkey. You know, I mean, they've they've certainly had films that do better than others, but there has not been one yet that was like just not successful. And that's pretty amazing when you're talking about what is it now? Nine films, I think. Nine, ten films. Right. That's and pretty incredible. None of them have been Green Lantern. Yeah, there's was, not was even clearly been one. a lesser quality film. You know? Yeah, there's not even been one that's been a eh, kind of film. I mean, they've all pretty much swung for the fences, and that's that's pretty incredible when you think about it. That's quite the run. So yeah, I mean, I I'm in love with uh, with Disney owning Marvel and the things that they're doing with it. I'm I'm on a Marvel fanboy uh, high right now. It's it's pretty incredible. Now with the uh, with the way that business deals and licensing deals and all of that that still has not allowed ROM to come back into the Marvel family of movies or anything. That's the my understanding is those deals were done before and during the bankruptcy and Parker Brothers is involved and whoever owns them, so I think there were hopes a few years ago that somehow the acquisition would bring ROM back into the fold, but that seems amazingly unlikely. Just it's by the funny. nature of the business deals. It's funny you say that because, strangely, that's the very last one of my notes was I was hoping that we might get into talking about a ROM movie and, uh, and you kind of lead off with that. That's funny. Um, my feelings on it are this. You know, there's a lot of talk out there that now that Guardians of the Galaxy has been the runaway hit that it has become... And now the Marvel Universe seems like it's pretty much split wide open that, you know, if they can make a a talking raccoon and a talking duck actually work and make people really excited about this, what can't they do? And there's been a lot of talk about the sequel, you know, Guardians of the Galaxy 2, of what characters would we like to see? And I like to kind of go in and spy on these things when they come up on threads or in Facebook or whatever and just see what people are saying. And one that I keep seeing coming up quite often, and I know myself, I keep throwing it out there if I don't see it thrown about, (laughs) is ROM. And ROM is unlikely at the moment for the rights issues that you mentioned, but I think if this success train continues chugging forward and they're continuing to mine for the Marvel backlog for great stories, great characters, great uh, potential franchises... I think you really don't have to look much, you know, much deeper than Rom, as we're going to see with this first issue right out of the gate. Wow, Bill stuff Mantlo, in here. Yeah, I mean, wow. Bill Mantlo established a mythos in the very first issue that, spoiler alert, <laughs> is still being mined today. Right. With stories like you know not too long ago, I think it was, I don't know, four or five years ago, there was Annihilation Conquest that directly tied in with the Space Knights and Galador and all that. And there was another series uh, a few years uh, after that, more recently called, it was, a, it was, there were two different four-issue miniseries called The Annihilators, which tied directly in to Rom and one of the characters that we're going to meet in this first issue. And so it's very relevant. While Rom himself is not present in the Marvel, the, the present day Marvel universe because of rights issues, certainly his legacy and the legacy of this title and this universe that Bill Mantlo built is, right. it, it's very much alive and very much being used. So I'm hopeful that, Elements of that will come into the future movies. 
Maybe we'll never get a ROM movie. I hope we do. I really hope we do. But even if we don't necessarily get a ROM movie, we may eventually have Star-Lord and his people go to Galador, or we may see Space Knights and that sort of... And that's pretty exciting to me. While I truly want ROM, just the fact that they can... pretty much play with all of this material except the big guy unfortunately right. so that that's hopeful in the same reign you know but in the you know they've both marvel and dc have recently made deals with some of their old creators you know settled things including mm-hmm. just a, a, as we record this about a week or so ago it seems like marvel and, and the kirby estate seem to have settled some things and you know maybe somewhere down the list on the marvel legal department is figuring out the rights of of ROM, maybe that's uh, somewhere on the uh, on the to do list. I hope I'm, so. I'm actually wondering why it hasn't happened yet because yeah. Parker, to the best of my knowledge, does nothing with the property. So right. you would think, you know, ten bucks and the deal's done. You know, I mean, what what's the? It's kind of yeah, a question of a, what is the holdup. Yeah, I I don't know if from a practical standpoint, somewhere along the line. Parker Brothers licensed it to somewhere or used it as collateral in another business deal or the rights are split somehow between foreign and, you know, that there must be some complex business thing happening. It can't be as simple as, like you said, you know, a ham sandwich and a $10 Starbucks card and I think they could have it. <laughs> you, yeah, you, that's what you would think. But yeah, I guess you're right. There yeah, must be know. something more complicated going on behind the scenes that we're just not privy to. But if it's a matter of money, you would think that yeah. the reprint, uh, you know, the reprint uh, possibilities alone of Marvel suddenly having the ability to do, say, uh, two ROM essentials or something those, those that, that fly the money off they would, the shelves. Oh yeah, because there are so many people that I know, uh, you know, comic collectors that are chasing ROM back issues in, you know, fifty, you know, quarter and fifty cent bins all over America and beyond that you would think that that would be guaranteed sales right there. So if it's a question of money, I don't, I don't see what the holdup is. So it's gotta be rights. There's gotta be something deeper. There's some sort of red tape going on there, but hopefully they'll get that worked out. There's been an awful lot of chatter about this with the success of guardians and Bill Mantlo's name being continually tossed around, you know, in conjunction with the success of guardians that I'm sure Someone at Marvel right now, you know, Marvel Studios, right. is looking. Hey, what el- what else has this Mantlo guy done? <laughs> what else can we bring to the screen that this Mantlo guy has done? And Rom's right up, you know, top of the list. Yeah. So, you and I connected over this issue about a year ago, and I, <laughs> I I Facebooked a picture of my haul from a trip to the quarter bin sale, and one of the books there was Rom number one, and a lot of the responses were along the lines of, oh, no way, man. I'm so jealous. How do you find that? But Scott Gardner posted, his reply was, oh, man, if you ever do a show on this, I'll happily guest. <laughs> so you, and it's taken a while, but you cut right to the heart of this. So here yeah. we are. <laughs> uh, do I, I just want to do a little bit of background about our individual sort of ROM fandoms or ROM history, and, and I'll start. And I've talked a little bit about this on the show before as I covered ROM number 46 way back in episode 5. But I had all 79 issues, that counts the annuals, and I must have gotten these via my Mile High subscription because I was too young at the time to be driving to the comic book store. 
but I had I had all the issues, including the X-Men one, which is hard to find. Read them all, I loved them. I don't remember the details, so I mean, one of the things about being my age, not going to speak for Scott, sometimes you read these <laughs> stories from 25 years ago and it's, hey, it's like they're brand new. Yep. <laughs> yes. So, but I do remember owning them and really digging them, so... Uh, now we're talking about them now. The reason I got this for a quarter, uh, you know, that's a that's another story because my ROMs were in the thousand or so comics that I sold back in 1999 when we moved from Virginia out here to Ohio. And I've used this line before, but moving companies charge by weight, and comic books are really heavy. Mm-hmm. So Flash and Wonder Woman and ROM and. All-Star Squadron. That one hurt when you guys started Tales of the JSA. Ouch. Let me tell you that. Like I said, about a thousand books found new homes via eBay. When the uh, when the LCS uh, in the town where my, my college campus is, where I teach at, they had a big sign in the window, 25-cent sale, and I learned they do it uh, four times a year, have these 25-cent sales. And eventually I found some ROMs in there over time. I thought, you know, I love this book. I'm just going to try to recollect however much as I can. I figured maybe I'd get 50 or 60 of the books max. Uh, as of this recording, I've reacquired 78 of those 79 books, uh, including the, X, the X-Men one. What's the one that you lack? I think it's 32 for some reason or 36. Sort of a weird one, I think. I don't, I don't know that there's anything special about it. Again, the X-Men, I think, is 18. That's the only sort of special one. But I was so stoked to find issue number one there. I could not uh, I, I could not believe it. Certainly excited, glad to talk about it. And boy, as you said, spoilers. It is as good as I remembered. So, <laughs> uh, so uh, Scott, on your side, how did you get into ROM, either the comic or the toy? Or did, did you know anyone who had the toy? To just steal it from Chris at some point. <laughs> I don't think he ever had it. I know I never had it as a child, and I wanted it desperately. Yeah. I don't know why exactly I did, other than I, you know, he just looked cool. This was at a time Absolutely. when you know electronic toys were just becoming a thing, and Rom was one of the first electronic action figures that you know he he did stuff he breathed and he made sounds and he had light you know lights for eyes and things and you know as commercials are wont to do they make it seem a whole lot cooler than it really is you know but i never had one as a kid but i remember really really wanting one and then of course he became uh, a comic book thing you know he became a character that that played and operated in the marvel universe and while I didn't collect the title as it was coming out, I was very much aware of him being part of the Marvel Universe. Probably my, my first big awareness of that, as I remember the story anyway, would be uh, Avengers number 221, which is a great Jim Shooter issue where the Avengers are going on another recruitment drive. And on this cover, it's, uh, it's set up like a, like a grid pattern. You've got all these different heroes. And you know what? I'm going to go ahead and pull that image up for myself here so I can talk about this a little bit more authoritatively just as who's on This is the funny thing is at this time, most of the people on the cover had never been Avengers before. Today, you know, we fast forward in time, you know, (laughs) 30-something years, and most of them have been Avengers now. Some of them are Avengers right now, I I believe. But you have – you've got Power Man, Spider-Man, Wolverine, Dazzler, Hawkeye – 
And then the next row down, very first one, Rom. Nice. You got Rom, nice. Invisible Girl, Daredevil, Ant-Man, The Hulk, Doctor Strange, She-Hulk, Black Bolt, Spider-Woman, and The Silver Surfer. And it's a very simple cover. It's just these headshots. And the banner, uh, you know, where you've got the uh, Avengers logo, next to that it just says, who will be the newest members of, and then you've got the Avengers logo, Earth's Mightiest Heroes. And underneath the picture of all these heroes, it says, pick two, answer inside. And spoiler, Rom was not one of the two that made it. But just the fact that he was on the cover, right? It, somehow this brought to, to me and my, you know, my childhood, my, this kind of brought Rom into prominence somehow. Right. That suddenly Rom was, you know, on the, the cover of the Avengers. And I know that he'd been around for a bit. By the time this happened, I'm pretty sure he had uh, he had guest starred in uh, Power Man and Iron Fist by that point, or you know had the crossover with them. But right. still, this was kind of Rom kind of making the big time, as it were. <laughs> and so I just remember him being there. I never had a whole lot of issues of the book. As I say, I didn't collect it as it was coming out. I, I would grab scattered issues here and there, so I didn't have much of a collection. And it wasn't until. Uh, years later when I was a, an adult and really started collecting very seriously and trying to build collections and everything, ROM was one of those titles I just kind of stumbled across at some point. And I was like, you know, I really need to go back and collect this title and, and get all the issues. And I started seeing them constantly in the cheap bins. Right. And so I would just grab them, you know, willy-nilly as I would see them and – at one point doing a, a little inventory or something, I realized how close I really exactly, was to having right. a complete collection. So then whenever I get to that point, whenever I, I look at a, 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 you know, a bunch of books that I've got and I, I do a little you know, investigating and realize that I've got over half or three quarters of, of a right. series, then I get a little more obsessive about actually completing <laughs> that collection. And that's what kind of happened with ROM and just that process of both buying collections and acquiring random issues that way but also specifically grabbing them when i'd see them really cheap in the in the back issue bins or at a yard sale or a flea market or whatever suddenly realizing one day that i had a pretty good run of rom and i only lacked you know a few key issues then it became more of an obsession of, of actually acquiring the thing so i don't know how long ago it was but uh it's, it's probably been a couple of years now but i finally did complete uh the entire series i've got um all 79 issues or 75 issues plus the the four annuals to so 79 issues and i think i even have the um the star knights or space knights rather uh mini series that that followed it up years later it's a four or five issue mini series i forget I did not by jim starlin um oh, that was but as far as the figure though many years ago when I when eBay was first becoming a thing, and I, I st first started selling comics really seriously on eBay, there was a time when I actually quit my job and I did eBay for about a year and a half or so, wow. and was making mad money just selling comics because we actually lived on that money for a while. But one of the few things I actually allowed myself out of the money that I made just selling comics was I bought myself a ROM action figure just because I'd never had one as a kid and I always wanted one. And he is proudly displayed right here on my desk. He's uh, he's always right here. I'm going to get him down and let's see. Is he I ready have to analyze him, you or let's, let's see you? if I can get him to do anything <laughs> here. Let's see. I'm not sure the battery is still. <gasps> it is still good. 
Come on, breathe, Rom. Breathe. There he is. There's his respirator. <laughs> nice. As you can hear, it's not. The, there he is. There he's breathing. <laughs> so, by today's standards, not the most sophisticated of sound, uh, you know, sound <laughs> chips or whatever. But still, you know, in the 1980s, that was pretty cool. That was pretty intense. And uh, I think one of the big reasons I wanted him when I was a kid was he, he's a taller action figure. I'm not sure exactly how tall he is. He's probably, I don't know, 14, 16 inches, something like that. But I had a few scattered tall action figures. Like I had a, one of the, the large Superman uh, action figures that was – he was at least 12 inches tall, probably taller than that. And Mighty Max and – like six million dollar man, you know, just scattered ones oh, right. like that. So I was always on the lookout for, you know, the taller ones where you could just have more characters, you know, have bigger adventures and everything. So I think that was another reason that I always wanted Rom. But uh, yeah, he's one of the prides of my collection now that I actually finally got myself a, a Rom action figure that uh, he works. And I, I'm pretty sure I have all the pieces to <laughs> That's it too. Amazing. He's got. Yeah, at the moment I have his neutralizer in his hand, but somewhere in some box scattered about the house, I've also got his uh, translator and his... Um, analyzer. Uh, analyzer, yeah, analyzer. Well, yeah. if you just reached in the hyperspace, maybe you could grab it, Scott. <laughs> Spoilers! <laughs> you do have me uh, have me intrigued by this ROM $6 million man Batman crossover. <laughs> That's evidently going on in your room. <laughs> Sounds pretty cool. We're about ready to get into the comic itself, so let's take a break here, and when we come back, Rom Space Knight number one. Well, hey there. This is Huckleberry Ham, and when I'm not busy making movies and TV shows, I enjoy listening to my favorite internet radio show, Two True Freaks. They got all sorts of shows for y'all to listen to, covering all sorts of geeky topics. Star Trek, Star Wars, cartoons, scary movies, folks eating supper, music, giant monsters, and one feller who buys stuff at garage sales. And the funny books. My word, the funny books. Old funny books. New funny books. Scary funny books. Movies about funny books. Funny books about movies. British fellers talking about funny books, and lots more. So why don't you check these fellers out and head on over to twotruefreaks.com and tell them Huckleberry sent you. Two True Freaks, chock full of great podcasts since 2008. And we're back. Rom Space Knight number one at a cover price of 40 cents meaning I acquired this comic at a decent enough 38% discount. The cover, by Frank Miller and Joe Rubenstein, shows Rom in all his glory, and he is ready to neutralize something good. Citizens are rightly cowering in fright. The story, Arrival, was written, of course, by Bill Mantlo, with art by Sal Buscema. The story starts with a comet strike, if it was a comet. The crater glows white-hot. The Earth itself is crystallized from the impact. But the armored giant emerges unscathed from the inferno. He has arrived somehow in West Virginia. At this point, we don't even know if Rom is a hero or a villain or something else. 
All we know is that he is here. To his right, he senses the surge of electrical power. This world, then, harbors intelligence. The first person he meets is Brandy Clark, and he tears her car apart, and, reasonably enough, terrifies her. Rom cannot understand the ways of this woman. I don't speak for Scott, but I think as married men, we know how Rom feels. <laughs> but he has a very helpful tool, and he summons it from subspace, which eventually becomes hyperspace, the energy analyzer. This device reveals to Rom that this is a human woman and not a dire wraith. So Rom has saved the woman, not harmed her. We're pretty sure he's the hero. So three pages in, and we know a lot about this Space Knight fella. And he jets off to find the enemy in the small town of Clareton, West Virginia. Rom appears in the town, and much like Brandy was, the town people are terrified. Assuming his analyzer is a death ray, to be fair, he does look a lot like a Cylon. Uh, two random humans wonder how Rom has found them, because they are in fact dire wraiths. Rom's discovered them, and they, they realize they have nowhere to escape and their fate is sealed. The energy analyzer disappears and is replaced by the neutralizer. The wraths in disguise are disintegrated. Rom has defeated another enemy. Unfortunately, the residents of Clareton don't see it that way. Like, literally, they don't see it that way. They only see two of their neighbors, who they know by name, who they've known for years, were just killed by a monster robot from outer space. Brandy Clark is scared. She doesn't know what to think of Rom either. He saved her, but just killed two men she's known for years. All the neutralizer leaves behind is a human-shaped pile of dust. The mayor of Clareton is looking for help from the state authorities, but is laughed off. Giant robot monster from space? What is this, New York City? But Clara, the switchboard operator, ask your parents if you don't know what that is, is going over the mayor's head to call in help of her own. She's backed up by the sheriff and a couple of other sort of scowling dudes in the background. Calls a general in Washington, and it seems certain that these folks do not have the town's best interest at heart. Rom is going to have a big fight ahead of him. Brandy cowers in fear from Rom, who pulls out the translator from his hyperspace bag of holding. Listen, woman of Earth, and perhaps you will understand after I tell the legend of the Space Knights. So that's the first half of the book, and boy is it epic already. Mm-hmm. So just starting with the cover, Scott, I think it's just dramatic. I love the angle. Rom takes up basically you know, the whole the whole cover, and everyone is rightly shocked or scared, as well they should be. Oh, I think it's a fantastic cover. I really do. It's reminiscent of the toy without being right. slavish to the toy, and it, it makes the the toy it makes the whole figure look just incredibly dynamic. I love that there's uh, little light glints all over him. Mm. You know, right. so he sparkles because you have to remember this is back, you know, well before, you know, digital coloring or really good paper right. quality or anything like that. So any any little tricks that the artist could throw in to really make something dynamic and, and especially something that was supposed to be metal actually look metal when it works well, it, it really pops. And I think this cover looks really, really great. It's not your typical Frank Miller 
This is Miller before oh, yeah. he kind of established, Absolutely. you know, a, a very distinctive Miller style. This is more Marvel House style, and I think it, I think it's a stronger cover for that reason. The only thing I, I ever had an issue with with this cover is uh, Rom's hand that we see. His uh, that would be, let's see, his right hand looks more like a like a vice. Yeah, and his yeah. feet look a little funny too. But other than that, <laughs> I think he looks really, really great. Now, I, I I love the fact that in the first three or four pages or so. I mean, we know Rom's going to be the hero. It's got Knight in the name. That's heroic. Right. He's the title character. But boy, does he appear terrifying. Mm-hmm. I just think that's a great touch. He comes He comes to town, alien from space, and the first thing he does is blows away a couple of your neighbors. And this <laughs> is the hero, right? I, 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 was... I, I, I just love that sort of, that, that turnaround. I always wondered whether it was intentional or not that Rom is somewhat reminiscent of Gort from the day the earth stood still. Ah, okay. And right. I think there's some of that vibe in the beginning here, especially when he actually goes into town and the people see him. I, I you know, the movie marquee at the Bijou theater that we see says the creature from space. I really wish it said the day the earth stood still as more of a direct nod to him. But he does, just kind of the way he's standing uh, in the center of town and everyone he's looking at him kind of leery like, ooh, what's the deal with this guy? He looks kind of sinister. And then he sweeps the crowd with his uh, with his analyzer and everything. It's just, to me, that's very reminiscent of that. I really like that. And the way he disintegrates the dire rates as well. But I, I love this introduction. I mean, you know, we're we're not even through the origin of the Space Knights. And already, just in the first 11 pages... Wow, you know what a, a mythology is already being established here. You you kind of you're getting a feel for the hero and what his mission is, and you know the nature of the bad guys and all of that. And uh, in a, in a modern comic, this first issue alone could be like a maxi series. There's so much stuff crammed in here; it's incredible. You know that is you know that that is such an old joke at this point, but it's so true. These first it is very true. These yeah. first ten pages would be what, two, three issues at least? I mean, there's mm-hmm. just so much packed in here, including this political sort of conspiracy mm-hmm. that you have, which by itself would be a full subplot that would right. be carried out. But you have this town, which is evidently overrun by dire race. I assume that's probably what drew Rom there in, 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 in particular. Right. Um, but you've got you know everybody in the town, it seems like from the sheriff down to the phone operator. Uh, is it is it you know they've they've managed to put people at all the critical points like a switchboard operator uh, and i like that you commented on that because i myself was thinking as i was reading this you know let's see what year is this book 1980 is that right yeah, 79 80 yeah. 79 yeah you know in even in 79 weren't switchboard operators kind of that was kind of an outdated I reference even, even then wasn't i would it? think even in small town west virginia Probably, yeah. You would think. Yeah. Eventually, we get to learn and see the dire wraiths. But even holding that off for now, you know, we never, we don't really see them in their horrific form. Right. Here. We're, I mean, we're still almost at the point where we're taking Rom's word for it. I mean, we are, we are seeing the, the human forms of the wraiths reacting and, and panicking. So, you know, we know something is up with them. But I sort of like holding off that reveal. He, See, he, I, he's, you know, he's, he's still, from what we're seeing, killing humans, going after humans. 
See, I wonder if that was purposeful by Mantlo and especially by Buscema that we see what the West Virginians see. We just see Rom eliminate two people. Now, later in the story, we'll see it from Rom's point of view. But at this point, we're kind of seeing it, you know, the same way, say, Brandy is seeing it. And I like that because... Until we learn more of the story and we see from Rom's perspective, we're not entirely sure still about this guy. You know, he he's saying these things, but is he on the up and up? And I like that. I, it's a great slow reveal the way these things are laid out. Just in this opener, the, the things that really stand out to me, of course, that first page is just incredible. I had forgotten that this was the actual first page of the story because I'm so used to seeing this as an advertisement for the title. Oh, you know, right. the entire yeah the entire first page of the comet streaking through the atmosphere in three panels and then you've got the the one full page splash of Rom emerging uh, emerging from the crater that was used as a promotional in-house ad in a lot of Marvel books to promote the book and I'd kind of just gotten used to seeing it that way and forgot no this is actually the first page of the story I think that's pretty neat and the shot on page 3 that first panel of Rom grabbing the passing car and saving it from going off the road is just right. dynamic. I it really is. love and just that. the absolute strength. He's mm-hmm. basically holding it up with the one, one and a half hands from the back. He's just lifting up the entire car. Mm-hmm. And you know, he's he's standing in the middle of the road so she's swerving around him. And like an as she swerves by, like you see, he just grabs the back of the car and just the power that we see there and like you said, the dynamism of that. I think he's a very dynamic figure, yeah. you know, a very dynamic. I think that's a lot of his appeal is that he's visually intriguing, but also he, he does strike a very dynamic figure you know, when he does these heroics and everything. And he's got just enough gadgets and accessories. He He's, he's a little piece of a lot of different heroes. And that's one of the things I really like about him. And, you know, as we'll get into with the rest of the story and the, the future chapters here, it, it's, it's all of these things combined with the nobility of the character, I think, that right. makes him so incredibly intriguing the way that he is. And, of course, right here at the very beginning, you know, the very first person he encounters is Brandy Clark, who is going to be a player throughout Rom's history. Yep. This just pulled me in. Mm-hmm. Let's pick up and talk about the story that he tells Brandy here, The Legend of the Space Knights. We learn that Rom is from the paradise planet of Galador, and the vast Galadorian armada soared the spaceways, bringing the light of knowledge to the darkest recesses of the galaxy. And 200 years ago, the Galadorians entered the Dark Nebula, uncharted space, which happens to be home of the Dire Wraiths, who attacked the armada. They unleashed the force of the Deathwing, a being with such an awesome name, and created of dark matter, so destructive and frightening that the dire wraiths themselves flee in abject horror from their own creation. Word of the dire wrath destruction of the Armada reaches Galador, and they learn that the wraths are coming to the planet for revenge and conquest. The Prime Director instructs his herald to ask for the people of Galador to volunteer their service in sacrifice to save the planet. Rom is the first of millions to offer his life to save Galador, and in the Hall of Science, 
where they are transformed into living weapons into metallic space knights. It was cold under the knives of the surgeons, he reports. The brave space knights form a barrier to stop the enemy ships. The Wraths, fearing defeat, unleash Deathwing again. Rom defeats the weapon and is hailed as the greatest of all space knights because when a man is talking to a woman, of course he mentions the part of the story where he is praised and lauded by his entire planet. (laughs) He was not going to leave that part of the story out. I'm just saying. Rom announces that he cannot rest until all the dire wraiths have been found and banished to limbo. He then reveals to Brandy that the wraiths can appear as any living thing, and his 200-year-old quest has led him to Earth. Again, today, this would be a four-issue miniseries, at least. Mm-hmm. I mean, again, there's just like there's just so much history, so much world building, so much backstory shoved into five pages. Amazing. Now again, amazing. Not, not to keep uh, saying, <laughs> bringing up the same point over and over again, but I, I think it bears repeating. With with Ga- Guardians of the Galaxy, the movie now behind us, can't yeah. you just see? this Legends of the Space Knights on the big screen. Can't you just see this as, as a really dynamic sequence of a movie? Because I totally can. I, I, I think this is a great setup for, for what could be an absolutely incredible film. Uh, I'm, I'm just really sucked into this. Mantlo you know, is operating at a time. You have to remember that there were so many space things going on at this time. You had star Wars and star Trek was back and Battlestar Galactica and so many other, you know, spinoffs of, of said franchises that there was a lot of interest and a lot of space stories going on. And so for this to come out at that time, yet still be fresh and unique and, and have a, a very distinct, tale to tell in there that is somewhat reminiscent of those things but still unique enough that it doesn't feel derivative i think is pretty cool yeah my understanding is that parker brothers only provided a very brief and bare-bones story that this is all mantlo i mean is that your understanding that's pretty much it i was going to mention that that you know if you ever get a chance to listen to the commercial and i'm pretty sure it's out there on youtube somewhere there's a commercial for the toy that I could be wrong, but I think it does mention the dire wraiths. Far, far away in another galaxy, the Knights of the Soul Star Order, defenders of justice and truth, have been ambushed by the evil magicians, the dire wraiths. The Soul Star Order has prevailed and are now seeking out their scattered enemies. One of these knights has followed the trail of the dire wraiths all the way to Earth. This one the dire wraiths fear more than all others. This one has hounded them and kept them underground for centuries. This one alone could wipe them off the face of creation. He is Rom, Lord of the Soul Star Order. Rom, the Wraith Slayer. Rom, the Space Knight. Even he must be careful. The dire wraiths can assume any form they wish. Rom counters this with the energy analyzer. 
With it, he can see through appearances and determine the true essence of any being. Krom also has a weapon unique to his order, the neutralizer, which can disorganize any molecular structure. He has rocket pods, which can instantly send him soaring. He has a translator through which he can communicate with any intelligent being in the universe. And his respirator allows him to breathe in any atmosphere. Krom, Lord of the Soul Star Order. Krom, the Wraith Slayer. Krom, the Space Knight. A microelectronic creation from Parker Brothers. But yeah. even that, if you listen to it, it's different from this. They They provided... Uh, a very bare bones outline of exactly what the deal was with Rom that, you know, he was a knight and he was fighting the dire wraiths. And I think maybe even the dark nebula is mentioned. I forget beyond that. That's about it. Much like other properties like say GI Joe or the Micronauts Mm -hmm. or the transformers or some of these other ones that were coming out right around the same time. It was pretty much, here's our toy come up with a way to sell it for us in comic book form. And <laughs> right. so the writers were pretty pretty open to establish these worlds, and that's why it, it's a lot of fun to look at these different properties, the, the toy properties, and see that it's really these legends that have that have sustained for you know now 30 years with a lot of these properties, like say G.I. Joe, that the things that people look at and, and embrace and remember about those, a lot of that mythology was created by Marvel right. writers. Right. That is definitely the case here with Rom. Rom really never had a story. He was just an electronic toy right. with just that basic outline in a commercial. It's, yeah, whatever he it's, could fit in a 60-second commercial. Exactly. It's Mantlo that created that backstory and that, that mythos for that character. I know that there was some rumors not long ago that IDW might be doing uh, a Rom title. I don't know if there's any truth to that, but if that actually happened, I'd be very curious – of what in the world they would write about and what they could do because, right. like I say, there is no Rom story without this series. Right. Rom is only a commercial and a toy. <laughs> right, That's it. Right. I've covered three Micronauts issues, and it's really the same, basically the same story. It's, it's Bill Mantlo again. Mm-hmm. And just reading those stories, and they're basically the same. I mean, he's, he's basically writing both titles by about 80 or 81. There's some overlap. That's just such great storytelling, just to take this oh, yeah. and then to be able to develop that whole world. That is one of my fondest, unfulfilled fanboy wishes, is that Rom and the Micronauts had, had <laughs> crossed over at right. some point. And I remember talking to somebody about this a while back, I forget, it might have been Scott Rifen, and just going, you know, why did that never happen? Forgetting for a moment the origins of these, of right. course... Parker Brothers toys were not going to be in an issue where they crossed over with whoever it was that oh, yeah. I forget who owned the money. You know, so two rival toy companies, they were not going to meet up and team right. up, you know, right. which is, but it's a shame because on a story level, that could have been a lot of fun. Right. We, we see the crew of the Armada is a very Star Trek worthy, diverse, <laughs> diverse crew. It actually might be Mr. Sulu. The, at that at navigation there right <laughs> you, know? <laughs> you know i hadn't you know it's funny i've concentrated on how silly the uh the captain looks because he looks oh, like yeah. like a he ought to be on a 19th century uh sailing ship or something yeah, every, every, yeah every, everybody's wearing those deep v pirate they, type shirts 
Yeah, they've even and got does he swords. Have a cutlass? Yeah, yeah, he does, and the woman does. I, I didn't even yeah. notice that it is a racially diverse crew. You're right. I, I hadn't even noted that. Well, we, I guess we did just a little bit touch on the the nature of the dire rates and the fact that you know they're shape changers and that they can assume the form of any living thing. If that sounds very right. reminiscent of another uh, Marvel baddie out there, the Skrulls. If memory serves, eventually it is revealed that they're kind of like was like cousin races or something like that. They're they're I, I think the either the wraiths are an offshoot of the scrawls or vice versa, one or the other. But I think they are related races eventually. And and I I, I like that these are not they're not robots. They're not and and, and they're not suits. I mean, these guys become right. these space knights. You know, they become these metallic cyborgy type of things and I, and I think that's why he looks he's mm-hmm. metallic but he doesn't look like a robot. I mean he looks like a human. I think that's part of what you were getting at with how dynamic he can be because he's lean. He you know he he has all of those sort of human elements. They're just in a metallic form. Right. Well like I said he's you know without feeling like he is derivative or like he is a piecemeal of other characters. Uh, again, the thing that really appeals to me about him is that he, he's, he takes some of the, the best and more interesting qualities of several other characters and kind of puts them in a blender and comes up with Rom. One of the things I really like about Rom is his nobility. You know, he's a very noble figure. He, he speaks with kind of that higher form and everything. So he's very reminiscent. And even his origin, I think is very reminiscent of Norrin Rad, the silver surfer. Oh, and he reminds me an awful lot of that character. But also he reminds me a lot of Superman because he's very steadfast in his mission. He knows exactly what his mission is. He has a very defined sense of right and wrong. And he really doesn't waver. He doesn't question. And he's just devoted to the mission that he has to do. But he does his best to protect uh, the innocent and things like that because there's a, there's a lot of instances in these early issues where human beings don't understand Rom's mission and they see him as a killer monster from outer space that despite the fact that they keep taking pot shots at him and they're trying to bring him down, he does everything he can to make sure that he doesn't harm them. And I really like that. I think, you know, again, that goes to his his sense of nobility. And then with the whole cyborg thing, you got a little bit of $6 million man going on and that never hurts right. either. So <laughs> I really like it. You know, he's, he's a great, uh, he's just a great character. But I like that nobility, like you said. And whoever came up with the the space knight, obviously that was, was right. someone at Parker Brothers. But I think Mantlo really lat- latching on to that knight aspect of it and really running with that. You know, it's funny with you saying that. This never, ever occurred to me till just this moment. But I'm wondering if that's Star Wars influence, you know, the mm, Jedi oh, Knights sure. oh, and, I, yeah. you know, wanting to do something space, you know, because space was on everybody's mind at right. this time. You know, everything was star this or space that. So you're taking Star Wars with Jedi Knights, change star to space, space night. OK, now we have our star. You know, right. I never even occurred to me before. That's funny. Yeah, that has to. That has to. I, I hadn't put it together like that myself with the Star Wars connection, but that mm-hmm. that must be. But they've certainly taken it in a different direction. You know, what's funny is that at the same time that there were so many knockoffs like this, I can't 
decide whether I think Rom would look cooler or thank God he didn't have a lightsaber. You know what I mean? Because so many of the characters at that time had their version of a lightsaber. I don't know if Rom would right. be cooler or, or I'm glad he doesn't have one. Yeah, I, I, they sort of laid in that backstory by having the, the armada itself carrying swords. Right. It actually right. could have worked. It could have, but yeah. I, I think that that may have almost been too on the nose for the right. night, for, you know, for the <laughs> night, you know, where, where we'll just take the nobility and that aspect of it and then give him these cool high tech, you know, the, the tools that he has are unique. They aren't space right. versions of earth toys or earth, earth tools. Well, they're not derivative of other things that right. other characters were using at the same time either. And I really like that, that he, I like that he had. You know, I often forget about the translator because after this point, I, I don't, don't think, think he used it, yeah, the translator not, yeah. that much. Yeah. But I like that he had two distinct tools in that he had an analyzer and he had a neutralizer, right. that they w- didn't function as the same thing. So he had to switch between the two. And if memory serves, I don't think his neutralizer would affect anything but the things he actually wanted to disintegrate with it, which is another feature I like. So he could spray an entire crowd of human beings and only the dire wraiths would be affected. That was another cool feature of his neutralizer, I thought. Now, I think that may change a little bit because I think when in his battle with the X-Men, I think he does use his neutralizer to, you, you, to kind of keep them at bay. Yeah, almost for dramatic purposes. Right. You have to have that weapon with the capability of injuring people. Right. The possibility of making a mistake or of someone jumping in front. You know, you have to have, sort of have those those stakes built in. Mm-hmm. And if he could just indiscriminately you know, fire it on everybody and kill just the ones he want, he wants, though it's cool, and I think it does take some dramatic tension out of the story. That's true. This, But this, this middle section, as crazy as it is to say, this is an epic five pages. <laughs> you know? Terrific, terrific. Let's uh, wrap up the story. Rom finishes telling his story to Brandy, and she is not quite sure what to believe. And Rom realizes that the core problem for his presence among humanity is, can it be that my analyzer reveals the truth to my cyborg eyes alone? But before they can work out the details, the National Guard, the mayor, and his dire wraith comrades all show up to stop Rom. They convince everyone that the Analyzer is in fact a death ray and open fire on him. The weapons of Earth have no effect on Rom, but one of the dire wraiths, disguised as a National Guardsman, fires a wrath weapon at Rom. Rom neutralizes him, but this only convinces the human soldiers that Rom is the enemy. Brandy tries to grab the dire wraith weapon, but they grab her. She manages to warn Rom, who sends some more Clareton Wrath citizens straight to limbo. Clara, the phone operator, don't forget her. She escapes <laughs> to warn the rest of the Earth-based wraiths that Rom is here. Why she couldn't have just called them? <clears throat> I don't know. <laughs> She's the phone operator. <laughs> but she says, I can best serve my wraith lords in another place in another guise and she turns into a mysterious black bird and flies away that is a dramatic and ominous the end 
again, just laying the groundwork for what is to come and more mm-hmm. of this misunderstanding. I'm glad that we're here at the, at the end of the first issue and we don't have Rom having explained to everybody his mission that he's going to be misunderstood, that he's going to be understood, that you right. have that misunderstanding as really a long part of, of, of the story of Rom. Right. You know, yeah. there, there's that separation that he has from humanity, that, that just fundamental misunderstanding of what he's doing. Yeah, that was a lot of where the tension came from in the early issues was that, you know, not only is Rom on this, this mission to take out these, these monsters that have infiltrated, you know, normal human society, but then the humans have tur- you know, are against him because they don't see it that way. They just think he's a killer monster. And that, I like that. I, you know, that goes on for quite a while. Which is not uh, an unreasonable, yeah, th- that, that is not an unreasonable conclusion. No, based not on at all. what they've seen, that <laughs> makes perfect sense. Again, it's it's not that the humans are acting are acting irrationally; they're acting based on the evidence that they've seen. It's a great opener, though it really is, because uh, you know in the in the early issues of this, what's really neat is that that type of thing goes on for a while. So it's it's a very tightly encapsulated story of you know of Rom going around you know this town in West Virginia taking out these rates yeah. and being, you know, feared and hated for it by the humans that he's protecting. But then eventually, you know, you get that grander scale where, where he goes back into space and that really opens up, you know, the whole cosmic side of, of Marvel as well. I think he ends up going to Xandar at some point, doesn't he? I believe. Yeah, I don't remember. Uh, the, the world of the Novas. And I, I cause I know he I ends right. up uh, right. meeting up with Nova at one point and stuff. So, I mean, a, a whole cosmic element involved there and delves much more heavily into more of the cosmic and more grandiose side of, uh, you know, of Rom's origins, you know, as a space based character in that. I'm a story first guy when it comes to comic books. And I know that you're the opposite. You're an art first guy. Mm-hmm. I think that's, that's, that's fair to say. So we've mostly been talking about the story. You, you've said before that no matter how good a story is, bad art can pull you out of it. And that, that's really not the case for me. Can you just talk generally about the art or, or from that perspective? Well, it's funny is that I think one of the reasons I didn't collect the title regularly when I was a kid was that I didn't care for the R. It, it, so it's funny you say that. See, I don't remember if I ever saw ROM number one as a kid, but if I did, I would imagine I probably would have skipped past it because I wouldn't okay. have cared for the R at that time. Right. What's funny now is I have seriously changed my opinion of Sal Buscema. I, I didn't care for his stuff as a kid, but I look at this now and... While there are still elements that I look at and go, eh, it's a little wonky or that's a little whatever, it's Rom that makes right. this work. He's a very dynamic character in every panel, no matter what he's doing, even if he's just standing there a lot of times. I like the way that uh, that Buscema brought him to life. He just looks – he's just cool to look at. He's just flat cool, and I really like that. The art in the – Origin of the Space Knights sequence is eh, that's that's probably the one sequence where I don't really care for the art that much, but the the Earth based stuff I re- I really like. Uh, part of the thing with the origin suddenly the coloring gets a little strange in mm, some parts. Okay. It's a little muddy, and I think that was just really more due to the limitations of you know the color palette of the day and the the paper quality and that sort of thing. 
but overall, no, I, I really dig this a lot. And I, I see Buscema's style as, uh, you know, really, I mean, he really just defines the character. Flipping through here, there are a couple. I'm actually looking towards the end. They're in this, this last fight scene. There are a couple where, you know, Rom is twisted and turned and he's sort of swinging with both fists. Mm-hmm. There's one where he's turned one direction and sort of sweeping the the neutralizer behind him to mm-hmm. shoot. Just some, like you said, great dynamic scene. Bushima does not treat him like a robot, which no. you might which you might be tempted to. And he right. treats him like a man, and then he's uh, colored, like you know, uh, you know, colored or drawn a, 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 as a robot. But the the actions are that of uh, of an athletic lithe. You know, right, a human being, and that that makes all the difference. It's odd too that you would kind of think, based on the toy being very stiff and rigid. I mean, the toy itself has very little in the uh, in the way of what we've come to call points of articulation. Right. He really doesn't have yeah. any at all, to be honest with you. You know, his his arms move at the elbows, you know, just up and down, and his legs move slightly, and that's about it. I mean, his head doesn't turn, and you know, so he's he doesn't have any real articulation, he's very stiff, very rigid. So you would think that as that would translate to the comics, he would be very robot-like, very like Frankenstein monster and stiff right. in his movement. Right. And he's not. He's he's much more like the Silver Surfer in that his body is his skin. Right. And I like that. I, I like that yep. about him, that he he's not just a big robot. And you know, other than the chest plate, He's a very right. fluid and, and dynamic character, and I think that again, visually, I think that really works to the appeal of the character. Yeah, that 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 reference to the Silver Surfer is a good one. We learned it. It is that the the suit is his body, right? That there was that that surgical replacement thereof to upgrade them, right? But, but keep keep that uh, that that human form, right? So, and I think that helped to maybe alleviate that sense of as the series goes on, you know, is he ever going to take his helmet off kind of thing? Well, no, right. he's not because he's, he's actually grafted yeah, right. right into this thing. It is, it is his skin. It is his person. So when you see him, you know, this is not a man in a suit of armor. This, this is him. This is what he is. And I, I like that. That's, again, a very unique take uh, for this kind of character. At the time, as you pointed out, you know, robots and sci-fi stuff was on a, you know, a peak at right. that time, and it would be easy to have just done the same old thing. Mm-hmm. But with so much stuff around, you know, to find those particular aspects that Rom could be different, that Rom could be unique. Now, the question that I have now, don't answer this. I'm just I'm asking the question because, like I said, it's been at least 25 years for me. But the wraiths are everywhere in this town. Are they everywhere? <laughs> everywhere? Or, again, was he drawn here because of this high density of wraiths here? And I wasn't totally sure. Again, don't answer it if you know, Scott. I'm I'm asking the question. (laughs) Are these people, were these sleepers? Because they talk about, we've known these people our our whole lives. So I didn't know if these were, you know, sleeper agents. You know, is this the long con that that the wraiths have have been running? Have they been here for generations? Or is this a, you know, body snatchers, you know, kill and replace sort of thing? And I like the fact that, again, that's a question that's not answered. Right. There are questions like that that aren't answered. And the question of how high does the conspiracy go? 
Mm-hmm. It certainly, it goes into some places in Washington, and I like that. Definitely. We talked, and this this does apply to Micronauts uh, as as well. They're both, yes, technically in the Marvel Universe. You know, you can point to stories where they intersect and, and, and interact, cross over, but they are largely disconnected for right. storytelling purposes. And I think that's part of what I like about this being in West Virginia or the issues of Micronauts that I've talked about on the show down in, in, in your neck of the woods, right. uh, down in Florida. And I just think having characters not based in New York City you know, is, is right. an easy way in, in the Marvel universe to, to separate them. It's connected, but it's really disc, it, it really is in almost its own world. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Like I say, a big fan. Uh, I've actually got myself several copies of this because this is one of those books that every time I run across it on the oh, cheap, yeah. I, I'm, I feel bad. It's, it's, you know, it's like running across that that cute homeless puppy. I just, I can't just leave it there. I've got to take it home. You know, Yeah, I've talked about that. I kind of have mixed feelings about finding great books in the cheap bins. Right. I love it, but it's kind of sad. Right. And, uh, we're not gonna, we're not gonna force you to act this out. This may have been covered on tales somewhere along the line, but <laughs> Spider-Man meets June Jitsu. No, it's it has not been. I was oh, I was looking at that Lance. too, just going, "Oh my lord, yeah, this one's really, really wonky." This is bad on many, many levels. <laughs> Let's just say that there's a uh, big delight in every bite, and leave it at that. <laughs> June Jitsu. June Jitsu. But I, my favorite part is the uh, the caption in the second panel that says June Jitsu. It says, "Gorgeous but evil expert in karate, kung fu, and." Other martial arts, like other things that I don't know the names of off the top of my head. (laughs) I wish it had said miscellaneous and other stuff, you know, and everything else. (laughs) Well, did you notice on the uh, inside back cover, you've got the one of the classic ROM ads for the toy as well. It says new electronic action toy. It plugs the comic, too, which is really cool. I, I I do have to say I think I like the art in the comic more than the art in that ad. He looks oh, no yeah. no he looks pretty goofy in that ad. He's yeah. he's sort of bug eyed for you know somehow. Well, what's funny is the ad is much more representative of what the figure yeah, really actually, does look like that's true. than the comic is. It's, true. it's more accurate. <laughs> I you know for years I kept hoping that when they were doing like say like the Marvel Legends uh, action figures. Mm. That we might eventually get a ROM, because while of course you know ROM is based on an action figure, there's never been an action figure of ROM that right. truly looks like ROM of the comics. Because right. it, it must be noted, it's very important to me to note that the ROM of the comics and the ROM the action figure two very distinct looking things, <laughs> and I think that's all for the better. Here on page 22, that second panel where all the other Space Knights are going, Hail Rom! You know, they're hailing him as the greatest of the Space Knights. You know, just that that spreads legs, right. you know, stance that he has is not something you're going to yeah, get out the, the action toy. figure. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, Scott, thanks for joining me in the quarter bin. It was great to have you here. Thanks for having me. I definitely appreciate it. Now tell us where again in the potosphere that we can find you. 
Everything that I do can be found at uh, www.2truefreaks.com. Come on over and check us out. We have an entire network of shows over there. Uh, so many shows, I can't even keep up with them all these days. So yeah, we mentioned all the shows I'm involved with at the, at the beginning here, but, I mean, there's so much more stuff over there. So go check it out. Anything you're interested in in Nerd World, there's probably a show being put out about it. So I guess, uh, you know, to wrap up, uh, the verdict on Rom Space Knight number one, you've got to be kidding me. This is a bargain at any price. <laughs> at 25 cents? Come on. This is a steal. A great issue, chapter one in a great comic book story. An absolute steal. So that wraps up the coverage of Rom Space Knight number one, bringing episode number 40 to a close. In episode 41, I'll be revisiting the mysteries of the Far East by looking at book two of the prestige format miniseries Shadow Song of the Dragon. If you have any questions or comments about this issue or the podcast, feel free to contact me. Until next episode, I'm Professor Allen, and I'll see you in the quarter bin. The Quarterbin Podcast is part of the Relatively Geeky family of podcasts. Show notes and links are available at relativelygeekypodcast.blogspot.com, where the podcasts Uncovering the Bronze Age and Shortbox Showcase also make their home. Links to Facebook and Twitter are there as well. Feedback for the show is welcome at relativelygeeky at gmail.com. And if you like what we've got going here, please leave a review and a rating in iTunes. It'll help more people discover the show. Thanks again for listening.